How many of you continue to do something even though you know you shouldn't do it? I think we probably can all answer that question. There's a variety of things that many of us continue to do even though we know we shouldn't do it. And logically, we even know we shouldn't do it. I know drinking more Mountain Dew is only going to lead to more cavities. I know that every 18 months, it's going to be a bill of $235.17. How do I know that? Because that's how routine it is. Even though I know that's how expensive it's going to be every 18 months, and I know the long-term dangers, guess what? I continue to do it. You probably do the exact same thing. Maybe not with Mountain Dew, but maybe a couple too much red meat, or maybe not enough walking. We all know certain things that we shouldn't do or that we should do, and we still don't do it. There's one thing I think that we could all agree on this morning, is that we know God's Word says, do not fear. Maybe you've heard the commercial, maybe you've seen the little phrase on the little posters that say, it says in God's Word 365 times, do not be afraid. We know it. It says it over and over in the Bible, do not be afraid. It also says over and over in the Bible, do not worry. It says it, do not be anxious. We know that fear and worry and anxiety is not supposed to be part of our lives. The weird thing about it also is that we know that worry and anxiety does nothing for us. When's the last time you got done worrying and you said, whew, that was a lot of fun? <laughs> when is the last time you were afraid and you're like, I'm going to do it? Because fear stops us. We know that we need to stop worrying. We know that we need to have less anxiety. We know that we're not supposed to be afraid. Yet, our lives are dominated by fear, worry, and anxiety. Fear, worry, and anxiety is a real issue this morning. I think if we went around the room this morning, I think all of us would acknowledge very quickly that we spend too much time in worry. Think about that for a second. We actually spend time in worry. It's not just something that kind of accompanies us once in a while. We actually spend specific time in worry or anxiety. At the heart of our challenge this morning of being fearful and worrying and anxious is a big fear that's prevalent in all of our lives. And it's the same fear that was prevalent in the lives of Jesus' followers when he was talking to them in this passage, and that is the fear of man. You see, Jesus' disciples were about to face some pretty serious persecution. The crowds were starting to pressure Jesus' followers. The religious leaders were starting to pressure Jesus' followers. And government officials were starting now to indicate that they were going to put some extra pressure on Jesus' followers. And so Jesus' followers are starting to what? Be afraid of other people. Fear of man, fear of the other person is common in every heart. Author Ed Welch actually summarizes it this way. He says, Fear of man is such a part of the human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. If someone says they're not afraid of other people, 
they're probably lying. All of us have a fear of others. Or another way of putting it, all of us want to please others. We're people pleasers. And that can be very dangerous. And Jesus acknowledges that danger this morning and actually warns against it. Well, what's the problem with fear? What's wrong with worrying? What's wrong with being afraid? Well, the first thing is this, very practically speaking, worry drains us of energy. Anxiety does not energize. Fear does not energize. Emotionally, spiritually, or physically. Even a medical doctor would agree with you, that, would agree with us this morning that anxiety it does not physically energize someone. It actually takes away physical energy and also emotional energy. And then that also means spiritual energy. It robs us of all of that stuff. Fear not only drains us of all of that, but fear also ceases, stops us from doing certain things. Fear stops us from acting. That's why fear is so dangerous, is that when we're fearful, we're not going to do what we're supposed to do. Some of us are afraid of of going to see the doctor because we know what? The news we're going to get is not good. So what do we do? We don't go and see the doctor because then we don't have to hear the news. Example after example, we could look at of how fear freezes us. It stops us from doing that which is required. Fear drains us of energy. Fear freezes us. But then also fear robs God of his glory. This is why fear is ultimately bad and wrong. Fear robs God of his glory. Worry robs God of his glory. Anxiety robs God of his glory. Why? Because when we're worrying, when we're anxious, and when we're fearful, we're not trusting the promises of God. And when we're not trusting the promises of God, we're trusting in someone or something else. So we're bringing honor to whatever or whomever we're trusting. That's what it means to bring glory to someone. It means to honor them. So if I'm trusting that so-and-so is going to bring me health and wealth, I'm bringing them honor because I'm placing my trust in them. So when we're worrying, we're not trusting the promises of God. Therefore, God is not being glorified. Worry, anxiety, and fear is dangerous because it drains us of energy, it stops us from acting, and ultimately, it robs God of His glory. Well, what's the issue then? We know we shouldn't fear. We know we shouldn't worry. We know we shouldn't have anxiety, but it seems like we need to have something besides the don't worry. Well, Jesus gives us that that this morning. The, the actual recipe for overcoming our fear is actually fearing something else. Look with me in Luke chapter 12, if you still have your Bibles open. Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's preparing them because he knows troubles to come. So he says in chapter 12, verse 4, Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more to, that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed you has authority to cast into hell. Kind of weird. Jesus says basically, fear not. Do not be afraid. Moments, seconds later, he says this, fear. But notice who he says to fear. Fear God. 
fear the one who has eternal or everlasting authority and power. So in other words, Jesus is saying, hey, don't be afraid of the people in this world or the things of this world. Rather, fear the one who has authority over all things and all people in this world. I mean, this is kind of a little bit of a joke, the way he says this. It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, what's the worst they can do to you? Kill you. I mean, I hear that and I go, oh, well, it's not exactly motivating Jesus. But you have to remember, Jesus has a completely different perspective. Actually, being killed in the eyes of Jesus, now, I don't say this lightly, being killed in the eyes of Jesus it doesn't appear to be that big of a deal. Why? Because Jesus has already existed outside of the life here and now. So he knows that there's something beyond what you see. Jesus came. He's already existed for eternity. So he knows what? That if you kill, if you're killed, that doesn't mean it's necessarily the end. But Jesus knows that there could be an end after that. And that's where Jesus gets a little bit confrontational. He gets a, a little bit unpopular very quickly. He says, hey, you need to be afraid of the one, not who takes the life that you can see and feel, but the one who takes the life that you'll have for eternity. So he says, fear the one who can cast you into hell. Now, again, this isn't very motivating, but this is Jesus being real. Wouldn't you rather have Jesus be honest than Jesus deceive you, give you something that you can have now, but then what? Lose what you could have had for eternity. How many of you go back to a doctor who you know intentionally lies? Even if that intentional lie just helped you feel better that day. You're not going to go back. If you're going to go back, you need to get checked in somewhere. We don't want a doctor who lies. We want a doctor who's honest to us, even if it's bad news. That's exactly what Jesus does here. He's real, he's honest, and he's straightforward. So what's hell? What does Jesus mean here by hell? Well, when Jesus said the word hell, he was most likely using a word that people would have thought about, meaning the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. There was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem that just reeked. It had powerful odors. That garbage dump was kind of known as the place of the dead. Not only that, but it was a garbage dump that kind of had a continual flame burning at it. So people kind of had a visual of this place that stinks, this place where there's a constant burn, this place that nothing is alive at. That was kind of their visual of hell. It was at this actual physical location. Well, some people now read hell and they say, yeah, Jesus was talking about that place. He's not actually talking about a real hell. Well, if, if Jesus actually is just talking about that physical garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, Jesus' argument here actually makes no sense then. And Jesus is actually lying to try and get you to do something. If hell is just a garbage dump that existed while that city of Jerusalem existed, it means it's no longer there, and it means that there's, nobody's going to be sent there by this God whom Jesus is saying is going to have authority after you die. Jesus is using the imagery of this garbage dump 
this burning, this stench, this place where there's no life to give an image of this eternal destination that God has complete authority over. And Jesus is saying, we need to respect the one who can place you in this garbage dump for eternity. Not just the garbage dump as we would know one, because our garbage dump is actually pretty clean, but a garbage dump where there's a constant flame burning to burn everything away. That is not a pretty picture, but it's a real picture. Jesus is not using false motivation. What kind of God do we have if God has to come down and scare us with false motivation about eternity? Why not just come right out and say, hey, no one's going to hell. Heaven's there for everybody right after death. Why, why not say it? It doesn't say it because it's not true. What's true is that after this life, there is eternal life. And that eternal life is spent in one of two places. In eternal peace and joy in the presence of God, what many of us describe as heaven, also known as the kingdom of God. Or in this place described as hell, separated from the presence of God. In other places of scripture described as a, as a burning lake of sulfur. Who are we going to fear? The one who can take this life, which may last 50, 60, 90 years, 95 years if you're lucky, or are we going to respect the one who can take away eternity, who won't just give us 95 years in a certain place, but hundreds, thousands, a millennia in a certain place? Jesus is saying to his followers, hey, you need to respect that one. And what Jesus is basically doing here is saying, hey, when you respect God who has that authority, guess what? The fear of man is no longer going to control you because now you're concerned with one thing and one thing only. How do I honor God? How do I honor God? For He is the one who deserves my respect. When we don't fear God, we're not going to seek to honor God because I don't have to acknowledge God. What's happened for most of us is that God has turned into a partner rather than a supreme being who has authority over us. This is a kind of a bad illustration, and I don't mean to talk about us as dogs, but it helps get across the point. We've got another house project going on at our house, doing some wood floor. This is kind of a side note, so if any of you are really good at redoing wood floor, see your pastor afterwards. Anyhow, because we're redoing our wood floor, I have to sleep in the basement. And as I get ready to sleep in the basement, we've got a mattress down there and the dogs are down there. The other night I let the dogs down there. We've got two big labs and had my daughter down there with us. And the dogs are in the room where the mattress is running around. I was upstairs. I come down and my daughter's yelling, Wally, get out of the garbage. Wally, get out of the garbage. She was yelling, screaming, and pointing. She's staying on the mattress yelling at Wally. What's Wally doing? Just continuing to go through the garbage pulling everything out. Well, dog, why aren't you listening? Someone's telling you to stop. The dog has no respect for a four-year-old girl who actually weighs about half of his size. So he just continues on to do whatever. 
Now, when I say, I don't even have to say. I just step into the room, and where does he go? Into the other room. There's a big difference in how that dog is viewing the two people. Too often, we've put God at the level of a four-year-old girl with a Labrador. We've simply ignored when God has been saying, don't or do. We've just kept on doing whatever we want. This morning, Jesus has given us a reminder, a warning. Hey, 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 hey. Remember who has all authority. It's the one who you are ignoring. So, Jesus is basically saying, hey, if you want to overcome your fear, your worry, and your anxiety, guess what? You need to put your fear in the proper place. Put your fear in the proper place, which will free you from all improper fear. The recipe for overcoming worry and anxiety and fear is to fear the proper authority, God Almighty. Well, fear does two things for us. The first thing that the fear of the Lord does is it gives us proper perspective. When we fear God, what we do is we've got the right perspective. We're viewing things from an eternal viewpoint rather than a here and now. And that's what Jesus is arguing for here is he's saying, hey, watch out. Don't be concerned about the here and now. You've got to watch for the one who's got power after this life. Fear of God gives us proper perspective. So often our perspective is just just a little bit off, and it causes us to do weird things. For example, sometimes I like to golf, and sometimes you go golfing with someone who doesn't golf that often. And actually, I'll just be honest, I don't like golfing with people that are rookies and don't golf very often. I'm kind of a golf snob, and I'm not even that good. But here's why. Here's why. You're golfing with someone who doesn't golf very often. They hit a bad shot. The very next thing they do is they take their club, and they're like, oh, you know what comes. Oh, and they're just, you know, yelling and screaming, ah, oh, I can't believe I hit that shot. And they're all upset. They should get a little perspective. Guess what? They've only played once in the last 12 months. So the fact that they're upset about a bad shot is just ridiculous. Even people that practice three, four, five times a week, guess what? They still hit a bad shot. You should go in expecting to hit a bad shot. It's all about perspective. Fear of the Lord gives us the proper perspective of what to expect and what to want and then how to respond. Fear of the Lord gives us an eternal perspective. The also, the other thing that the fear of God does for us is it gives us the proper foundation for our relationship with God. Now, we're not going to hear, you're not going to hear this very many places. The fear of God gives us the proper foundation for our relationship with God. Most of us, when we think of our relationship with God, we think of one thing, the love of God. Is that true? Absolutely. God's love for us is foundational. It, it, it sets everything up. It gives us even the opportunity to have a relationship but our relationship with God is not just on the foundation of love. It's also on the foundation of fear. Open in your Bibles, if you would. Let's go back to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This is the place where God gives the Ten Commandments. He's giving them to His people. 
God has already established a relationship with His people, but you could kind of look at this as He's really cementing that relationship now. He's kind of saying, okay, we're in relationship together. You're my people. I am your God. We're going to relate to one another. So you could kind of look at this as God setting the foundation of His relationship with His people. He's given the Ten Commandments. Look with me, if you would, at verse 18. Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. First, I want to point out, notice the unity of Scripture here. Notice the unity of what Moses is, God is saying through Moses and what Jesus says in the New Testament. This is so critical to see. This is, I don't know how many years, but could be 5,000, I don't know, 4,000 years apart maybe. Don't know the exact time frame. It's a long time apart. This has already been written. Do you hear anything similar to what God says, to what Jesus is saying? God says, hey, do not fear, and then what? Fear me. That's what he says there in verse 20. God's speaking through Moses. Verse 20, he says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. You see the unity here? God is saying, hey, you shouldn't have any other worries, anxieties, or fears except one fear, to fear Him. We don't look at this stuff because this doesn't drive people to God. And so therefore, we've got to take it out. You can't use this because it doesn't attract people to God. If it doesn't attract people to God, it doesn't bring people to your church, which doesn't fill the offering plates, which doesn't allow you to operate your business. So we, just, we don't use it. But you can't ignore it. What I would contend is one of the biggest moments in human history in human history, the giving of the Ten Commandments has got to be one of the biggest moments in human history. You would think, well, this is a big PR moment for God, right? I mean, you're giving it. Hey, what if, as God, your message is here is love me, like me. But what does God finish with? Fear me. Revere me. The people are standing in awe of God. They're respecting God because they've got an appropriate vision of the power and the authority that God has. Our relationship to God should be established on the foundation of fearing God. Now, sometimes when we hear that, that the foundation of our relationship should be the fear of God, some of us are like, well, why should we be scared? There's a big difference between being scared and respecting someone. I can respect someone and have a very healthy relationship. When I'm scared, it doesn't allow for intimacy and actually probably creates separation. God's not desiring us to be scared, like in a corner going, oh no, what's he going to do next? No, no, no. He desires respect, acknowledgement of what he can do and what his word says he will do at the end of time. Now, what usually drives scared? What usually drives scared is this, 
previous experiences with authority. So maybe you've got a previous experience where someone in authority over you, what did they do? Every time you broke something, broke a rule, you went a different way, they came down harshly on you. They disciplined you severely. So therefore, anytime you have authority, what? You're scared of authority. Well, the testimony of Scripture is this. When God's people are faithless, guess what? God is faithful. The testimony of Scripture is not a God who destroys His people, but a God who is patient with His people. The testimony of Scripture is this. People have done wrong. God sends His own Son not to bring the sword, but to be the recipient of the sword. There's a big difference. Jesus does not come bearing a sword. Jesus is actually at the other end. He's the recipient of a sword. It's called the cross. So God is not one who we should be scared of in the sense of, what's He going to do next? But He is one whom we should respect for what He has done and what He has promised He will do in His Word. Fear of God gives us the proper perspective. Fear of God sets a healthy foundation for a relationship with God. If you do not fear God, your relationship with God is this. You're equals. And if you're equals, guess what? Sometimes you get to say, sometimes he gets to say. If you're equals, guess what? Well, if I don't get exactly what I want, I'll go pick and choose through someone else who's an equal at this time. It's a different relationship. But God desires a relationship not where we're equals, because we're not equals, but a relationship where He is our Father, He is our Creator, He is our Savior and our Lord, where we would acknowledge Him and live in intimacy with Him. But it's with respect. It's with acknowledgement of who He is and what He has done. God wants us to respect Him. Now, if you'll turn back with me to Luke chapter 12, you may be thinking to yourself, how about some good news, Pastor? Well, I would contend that what we just talked about was good news, is that God gives us the opportunity to respect Him. That, that's good news. The bad news would be is if God just said, to hell with it all, to hell with everyone. He doesn't do that. He gives us the opportunity to respect. Now, now, this God who has all of this authority, we might view Him as one who's kind of far offish, one who's standing back from everything. But look with me in Luke chapter 12, back down to verse 6 and 7. Jesus just said, fear God, this one who has authority to cast you into hell. Now notice what He says next about this God who we are to fear. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. This God, who has all power and authority, not just over the here and now, but this God who has power and authority over your eternal existence, this God is intimately involved with His creation. Look at how deep this goes. Intimate to the point where He knows the number of hairs on your head. This is a big deal. Even for those of you this morning who are using hair stuff to grow more hair, this is still a big deal. 
Can you even begin to imagine just this afternoon, count how many hairs you have on your head? That, that's the intimacy that God has with his creation. That's how much he wants to be engaged with his creation. God's not one of those managers that's like, yeah, I don't need to know when the sparrows fall. They're not high enough up on the food chain for me. Don't, don't make me, let my angels take care of that. No, even that part of the creation which is meaningless, God says, I'm going to be aware. I'm going to know. That's our God this morning. That's the creator of the universe, the one who has all power and authority. Not only does he have all power and authority, but he has humility to the point where he would say, I want to know about your hair. I want to know how many you have. This God who is far off and who has all power and authority is also intimate. And the ultimate example of that this morning comes from his word, and it comes from the person of Jesus Christ. God is not far off, but rather he comes to us in the form of a man named Jesus. He comes and he's born in a manger. He's born in the dirtiest of dirty places. And then he goes and lives a lowly life as a carpenter, basic and simple as it comes, simple blue-collar worker. You have to remember that Jesus didn't start ministry until the age 30. And it's not like he was sitting in some seminary until the age 30. Jesus was working, living among the people, the ordinary day-to-day -day life. This is the kind of God we have. A God who has power over your eternal well-being comes and lives among us. And not only does he live among us, but this God who lives among us then comes and takes the punishment that we deserve. The punishment that gives us now the opportunity to be forgiven. To not have to be afraid of this place called hell, but rather rejoice that we have eternity in this place described as heaven. Today, we can have a relationship with this God who has all this power and authority. That relationship begins by saying this, God, you are God. I am not. God, you are God. I am not. I respect you. And when we respect God, guess what? Our other fears and our other worries and our other anxieties begin to be minimized because we've maximized the one who is already great. Today, if you're struggling with fear, worry, or anxiety, I want to encourage you don't post another commandment on your fridge that says, do not worry. It won't help. If we could stop worrying by memorizing the command, do not worry, we'd be done worrying by now. If we could stop being afraid by memorizing the command, be not afraid, we'd no longer be afraid. Don't memorize that command anymore. Actually, go the other direction. Do something completely different. Fear God. Put yourself in a different position. And when you put yourself in a different position, you have a different perspective. When you have a different perspective, that begins to quench the worry, the anxiety, and the fear. Fear and anxiety and worry is a real issue for many of us today. 
And Jesus' response to you today may appear to be stern. And may, it may appear to be unwelcoming. But Jesus' response is real. And it's actually helpful. There are no seven steps to overcoming worry or anxiety. There is no quick formula or antidote to overcome your eternal problem of where you will rest for eternity. There is only one solution, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. That when we say to Jesus, Jesus, you are my Lord and my Savior, we begin then to enter into a relationship with this God who we should fear. It's time for a new approach. It's time for a new position. That approach is one of giving reverence where reverence is due. That new position is being a follower of Jesus Christ. Today, will you give respect where respect is due to the creator of the universe who holds all authority and power? Let us pray. God Almighty, you are beyond our understanding. You are like no other. We acknowledge this morning that you are sovereign. We acknowledge this morning that you have all authority. We acknowledge this morning that you have all power. And we give thanks this morning that you handle your power and your authority in a loving way. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for intimately knowing us. And now I pray that you would create, that you would stir in our hearts a respect for you. God, make this a respectful church. Make this a gathering each week that respects you, that declares your greatness. Make this also a church that is in intimate relationship with you that is in love with you and expresses that to others. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for coming to us in the person of Jesus. We praise you this morning. We acknowledge you. We fear you. In Jesus' name, amen.